Should I start recording, or do you want to sync to start? Uh, let's just start. Okay. Syncing always seems to be an issue, so let's just hit do it, and I'll figure it out if needed. It is going. So is mine. Yay! And that kind of works, actually, as a syncing. I clicked the button and said, so is mine, so it goes right after yours. So that works. Gotcha. All right, I have cable 48 open. All right, then let's start with that one. James Robinson. Mm-hmm. Let me bring that open myself. Hello, Mr. Tablet. Hello, Marvel Unlimited. Hello, kitty being noisy. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. Oops, no, this is 49. I'm on 48. That says 48. Why is it opening 49? There we go. Hello, welcome to Back to the Bins. I am not Paul Spataro. Neither am I. And neither is he, Dr. Bill Robinson or Scott Gardner. I have been known to play them on TV. Yes, so that was a qualification. We are here doing Assistant Editors Month for Back to the Bins. Um, and my name is John Wilson. And I am Al Sedano. And yes, this is Assistant Editor Month, basically when they get the genius idea to get other people to record their podcast for them. I really have to figure out how to do something like this, because that is a great idea. <laughs> Whenever my podcasts have gone long enough and consistently enough, as Back to the Bins has gone for how long, like ten years now, then um, I can I can maybe get people to come and do my show for me. It's a great scam. I love it. <laughs> so so yeah. we, uh, I believe the uh, the idea behind Back to the Bins is that each person at the table brings a comic book. One person brings a Marvel. One person brings a DC, one person brings an independent, or some like that. Is that is exactly. is that so so we don't have three people. So we just got two out of three of those. Well, we can get Scott on here. I mean, all you have to do is just go into a bathroom, say his name three times, and he shows up. How's it going? That was my <laughs> Scott Gardner impression right there. John Wilson, everybody, give him a hand. Da, 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 da. So you decided to take Marvel on this bad boy. Yes. And since mine starts early on the alphabet, let's start with that one. Plus, we both already have that opened up. Yep. We are doing Cable number 48 from November 97. Because, yes, that's the other thing about the show is it's usually everything is 10 years old or more. So anything from 2009 earlier. Luckily, both our stuff is from the 90s. So plenty of time. I love the 90s. There's a lot of fun stuff out there. And a lot of it is actually by the people that, uh, the creators that we are both going to be talking about today. Woohoo! So yes, from Marvel, I have Cable number 48, like I said, cover dated November 97, written by James Robinson, who at this point was about a quarter of the way, a third of the way through his Starman run. This would have been the same month as issue 36 of Starman. So another great comic from the 90s. 
but written by James Robinson, penciled by Landron, sorry, Ladron, there's a D first, inked by Juan Velasco, colored by Gloria Vasquez, lettered by Albert Deschnin, and edited by Bob Harris and Mike Powers. And the cover is by Land- Ladron and Juan Velasco, featuring the cover copy f- saying, From Out of the Fire, a Savior. And we have a woman crouched in the bottom corner while one of the goons of the Hellfire Club is coming at her with a gun, and Cable is jumping through fire above them. Very big, very large. I don't know. Have you ever read anything uh, drawn by Ladron before? I've not. But Ladron really, really reminds me of Jack Kirby. Oh, yes. Both in his energy and just like his shapes of people's faces and such. I was actually thinking of it yesterday. He reminds me, especially his art has evolved, of course. But at this time, his art definitely reminds me a lot of a combo of John Romita Jr. and Jack Kirby. Mm hmm. You wouldn't, I wouldn't say necessarily on a lot of the opening pages in this comic where it's a lot of people talking. Uh, he kind of has his own take with a lot of people's faces on this. But when you get into the comic, you kind of get a feel for the energy of his story. There's definitely a Kirby-esque feel to everything. Yes. No, it's definitely more Cur- a bit more Kirby. But yeah, I still feel it's like there's a bit of Ramita Jr. Like his characters have a bit of a blockiness like Ramita's does, mm-hmm. especially yep. later Ramita. Yes. Like I'm thinking when he was drawing Superman Ramita. Or even X-Men, actually. Hellfire Hunt Part 1, Dirty Secrets. Story starts with Irene Merriweather, who is a reporter, although she uses that term lightly, because she works for basically a supermarket tabloid. Kind of like the weekly world news for the Marvel Universe, except they used to talk about made-up stories about monsters and Atlantis until that stuff started becoming real. And now it's a gossip magazine. But she wants to work for the Daily Bugle. She wants to be a real reporter. And her editor, Maxie, calls her into her office because he has a picture of some society function featuring Sebastian Shaw. And as most people know, he's the black king of the Hellfire Club with some unidentified redheaded woman on his side. Now, real quick, the unidentified redheaded woman stays unidentified the entire issue. I think it's Madeline Pryor. Because I think this is when Madeline came back after Age of Apocalypse. Uh, okay. It's not because that that goes with why they're saying here no one knows who she is. There's no record of her. It's like she doesn't exist. Gotcha. Technically, she didn't. So she is trying to dig up some dirt. She goes to some of her friends, the people she knows, society people, a uh, street guy, a cop. No one seems to know anything about her or Shaw, but they all do. They all seem very nervous about talking about it. Like, they're, they're trying to say there's nothing when there is something. And to her, it seems like somebody's really trying to stay off the radar. Finally gets a snitch, basically, to talk to her. A guy who works at a catering function. Gives her some information that he was talking to a guy named Pierce about an operation. They hated some guy who was involved, and they were going to be hitting cord. Later on, she gets a call back from that guy saying, Oh, I remembered some stuff, actually. I forgot. It wasn't cord. It was hitting cable. And she goes to find him to see if she can jog his memory more and finds him dead. Shot. Killed. Rushes back to her office because her editor used to work for the Bugle before, as she said, he liked his peach stops too much. And the entire office has been shot up and destroyed and everyone is dead. Freaked, she runs out and we get three of the Hellfire Club Club goons on, looks like a 
sky sleds or something, chasing after her, shooting at her. She runs, blow up her car. She almost they almost get kill her, and then all of a sudden, and this is like three pages left from the end, Cable shows up and just takes them out quickly and efficiently. These guys are gone. And basically he does his uh, Sarah Connor impression. Come with me if you want to live. That's it. I mean, it's a very simple story, but personally, I think it's really well done, especially as an introduction for like people who have never read the book before. I was super absorbed the entire time. I'm a good, you know, four years in my reading of X-Men prior to this. So I've gotten past the point where Cable has started to become, you know, a regular part of things. He has his own comic series, but this is, of course, you know, four years later, lots of stuff has happened. It's the 90s. It's the X-Men. So I wasn't really too sure what the status quo was when I was going into this. But hey, guess what? You don't have to know. It's the beginning of an arc. And it's the it's it's uh, an external person's point of view, beginning a story from their point of view, and it just I was roped in with her desire to work for some other kind of newspaper, and you know her pursuing this story, her getting shut down every left, right, and center, and then whenever everything got turned on its head, and the person she was going to talk to was dead, and then all of a sudden it's like the music kicks in. And the fast-paced camera work goes, you know, starts going. And she gets back to her office, and her office is all shot up. And the people are trying to kill her, and she's running. She doesn't know what's going on. And then, like, out of nowhere, like like the front cover says from Out of the Fire of Savior, Cable's there. And he, I know where they're trying to come after me. What I don't know is why they're trying to come after you. And uh, like you said, he, he holds his hand out to her to come with him. So it's it was a really riveting story. This was an excellent issue. I hadn't read Cable in a while. And at this point, I was reading because I bought this book when it came out. I hadn't read Cable in a while. And I saw Robinson was starting to write it. And I was like, ooh, let me give this a shot. And I was very happy I did because, wow, this was a great run of Cable for like 20 issues. Mm -hmm. It's uh, Robinson writes it for a couple issues. And then uh, Joe Casey takes over with with Ladron still doing the art. And it's kind of a weird run because, like, they take Cable a bit out of the X-Men universe. Like, they involve him a bit more in the Marvel universe. There's stuff with Master Man. There's stuff with the Black Panther. Well, good. Because especially around this time, it seemed like they kind of kept everyone in their own lane. Like, no, Spider-Man, you stay with your Spider stuff. Avengers stay with their Avengers stuff. The X-Men stay with their X stuff. And, you know, never the twain shall meet. And then here's Cable running around meeting up with the Avengers and stuff. You know, I like Cable. I kind of like the idea of him getting out there, you know, playing and meeting more people. A lot lot of the other characters have had, you know, decades to play in other people's sandboxes. Cable started in the late 80s, and for a while he was just the mystery man of the New Mutants. Then he was the military leader of the X-Force. Then he was the mystery man from the future doing stuff, you know, not with X-Force. But it was all centered around all that stuff. So to get him the chance to just kind of be out there and be a person in the world because that was his backstory the backstory of cable was that he was this person out in the world doing covert ops and stuff like that and we just didn't know him until now so theoretically he could just keep on going out there and being a man about town yeah because that actually comes up in the story because i ended up reading issue 49 and you know who donald pierce is right from the hellfire Mm -hmm. club the cyborg Mm -hmm. guy Cyborg, yep. Yep. As we find out next issue, Cable's actually the person who first basically caused 
limbs or whatever to be lost where he needed to become start becoming a cyborg. Gotcha. So, you know, throws in a little bit of hit, you know, starts giving some of that history. But another good thing about this issue, I thought, besides being a great jumping on point for anybody, is because we're, we're also starting with a brand new point of view character. Since we're going with the X-Men, kind of like when Kitty Pryde joined or when Jubilee joins, where it gives it, you know, gives them a chance to explain what's going on. So therefore, there's a reason to be telling newer readers this is what's happening instead of just doing these old fashioned. Uh, here's our expedition exposition dump in the middle of the story. Someone's actually going to be asking, wait, what's going on? Who is this? Right. And it also kind of brings back the mystery of Cable again, because now she doesn't know who he is. So to this character, he is a mystery. Kind of like the Doctor when a new companion comes in. Exactly. Does Irene Merriweather stick around for a while? Oh, yeah, for a while. Because, I mean, this series goes to issue... I'm not saying she's in all of it, but I know this issue series goes to 107. And I think the Cable and Deadpool series comes out after this. Mm-hmm. And she's still around in that. Okay, okay. So she's going to stick around for a couple years. At least, at least two. Exactly, maybe even three. There were some nice touches on the art. There were some subtle things you could go back and check. And actually, one of the things that I saw while you were recapping is on the second page of the story, the big old splash of the office, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of people doing a lot of things. Up at the top is Red Cap Guy talking to a woman over the edge of a cubicle wall. Blonde Schmo comes up behind him with a piece of paper in his hand. Oh, the kick, yeah, the kick me sign. And that's on his back every time we yep. see that guy for a while. The next page, he slaps it on his back. And then two pages later, guy walks by. Is it two pages? I'm trying to find. Yeah. Two pages later, guy at the bottom of the page, guy walks by the window and he has the kick me please sign on his back. Yeah. No, the art, I like that because he does a lot of, it's not just the main characters, it's the world they're in. And plus those first few pages anyway, because she's talking, the first page is just black, and all you see is her desk and her writing, like she's right, like she's in the dark writing on herself. Mm-hmm. And she even says here, when I'm writing, when I'm totally into my work, then everything else goes away, and I feel like I'm completely alone. And then we get this splash page, and it's just the office setting, like you said, it's an overview of the office narration continues of course all it takes is someone coughing as they pass me or someone calling across the room for coffee or pencils and i realize i'm not alone at all and you all of a sudden everything is opened up and you realize she's in this big bustling office and i always like that i thought that was a cool way to start the story yeah yeah it's it's good because you immediately get a sense of her personality and her reaction with the world she is in the world but she's not really connected to it she's very introverted she's very much her own person everyone is happening around her she is not a part of the crowd exactly and another thing about the series this issue i noticed it's almost like two or three different stories it actually reminds me of uh if you've seen the movie 28 days later Mm -hmm. that's almost like three movies that feels like to me that you know that first it's basically it. It's like almost like a typical zombie movie, a horror movie. You know, these things are coming after him. He doesn't know what's going on. They're, they're, he's running around trying to find safety. And then they get into the apartment. He meets the girl and then they get into the apartment complex and they meet the father and the daughter. And then they get on the car to leave. And all of a sudden it becomes almost like a family road trip movie. They're having fun. You know, they're having a good time. Everything's good. They're driving along. Everyone's safe and happy. They're laughing. And then they get to that 
where they think it's going to be safe, and the father gets the blood in his eye and goes crazy, and all of a sudden they meet up with the army people, and it becomes like a whole nother movie. It mm-hmm. becomes like this uh, different type of horror movie. This is very similar. The first one is like this movie, almost like you could almost believe this being like the start of a romantic comedy about this reporter who's really, you know, introverted, like you said, and in her own head. And then all of a sudden it takes this creepy turn and it becomes like a suspense movie where all of a sudden everyone's she's running around all these places and everyone she had talked to before. Every character we met is dead and she's freaked out and doesn't know what's happening. And then the end is kind of like a action movie. Because mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, the, all of a sudden, it's not just people dead. All of a sudden, you have these guys in masks and flying sleds shooting at her and blowing everything up. It's very much a three act play in this opening act of the story. Yes, and this just reminds me of about why the time. I really love James Robinson's work. Like I said, this is his time on Starman. It's about a year or two before Justice JSA started up. Yeah, he tends to get a bit of a bad rap now, but there was a time when James Robinson could do no wrong. I mean, he only does like three or four issues of Cable, but they're really good. I didn't know that Madeline Pryor came back, so that's going to be interesting to get to. Also, where I am in the continuity, Sebastian Shaw is dead, and Shinobi is trying to take the things over, and there's still that big game among all the externals of who's going to, you know, oh. evil mutant land. Oh, yeah, Sienna Blaze and all them. Yeah. Yeah, this is, yeah, like I said, that's before Age of Apocalypse. This is after. Right. So stuff gets changed. So, yeah, really, really good issue. Um, I just keep on going back and forth in the art, just looking at all the different images, looking at the details, because there's so much detail. Um, you know, Got Milk was starting to become a thing around this time. And in one of the cityscapes, there's a just a teeny tiny image of a, of a, advertisement it has milk and it has a picture of cookies in it you know she's a library there are billets for ballet there's a big mural on the wall there's someone pushing someone in a wheelchair when she's talking to the cop and he's really stressed in the locker room there's a whole bunch of trash on top top of the locker yeah the next page when she's talking to the guy in the bar you know the first panel has a couple people else in the bar drinking some guy cleaning up and the last panel her walking down the street in New York and there's debris stuff flying in the air there, you know, it looks wet. Like it looks like it rained. Mm-hmm. You know, you got a fire hydrant. Landron really is. If you ever read an issue and you're like, ah, just feel like there's nothing going on here. You know, there's no background. It's like all just bright colors, the background. Well, then read this. Cause there is definitely background stuff. Yeah. Yeah. This is a very, very fleshed out world and it's fantastic. What I, what I kind of sort of want, but was also kind of happy not to see, was the kick me please sign on somebody's back in the dead people scene. I, I kind of feel like they could have done that, but that would have been taking the joke too far. Yeah. And we don't really see that. I mean, the only one we really can identify who is dead is her editor. And to be fair, he's the only one who has a name. What I when I realized I was seeing Kirby-esque elements and I went back through and started seeing a lot more of it earlier on, but when I really like, oh wait a second, there's a lot of Jack Kirby going on, was the Hellfire Club goons on Orion's sky sled. Oh yes. It does look very much like Orion's Astro Force sled or whatever it's called. Yeah. Yeah. They're flying around on Orion's gear. And I was like, wait a second, I know that pose. That's 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 Kirby art. And then I realized, wait a second. Cable is shaped like a Kirby drawing. Like, oh, wait a second. There's a lot of Kirby-style layouts going on here. 
you can tell that I mean LeDron I mean it's not just a Kirby rip because he has he has his definitely his own style. Oh yeah. But look at the cover. I mean, look at the cover and the way cable is oriented and that hand coming out of the comic book at you and the blockish squarish face and the big old knees. Uh this just it just screams, Hello, I love Jack Kirby. Yeah. In a good way though, you know? Yes. And actually, I just realized also while skimming through the issue, what I'll say about backgrounds, and he does do those backgrounds, and then when we get to the action stuff, especially when it's Cable fighting them, they kind of go away. It goes to all of a sudden, the focus now is the action, not the background. Mm-hmm. Which is actually a nice touch, because before you want that, because it's he want to convey the element that this is a world she's in. You know, she's actually in a right. real world. She's in a real newspaper office. She's in a real New York City and then when we get to the crazy action stuff with Cable and villains, all of a sudden that background goes away and it's just bright colors and looks like speed lines all over. Yeah. You go from a <clears throat> saturated city to an action piece. And it's 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 a it's a I'm assuming deliberate style shift and it works very well. That's my assumption too and I agree. So what do you want to say about this? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, anyone who's looking to read this, besides finding back issues, it is on Marvel Unlimited. So if you have that, I suggest giving it a shot. Even if you're not a fan of Cable or the X stuff, this is a different type of run. You don't really have to care too much about the X stuff. I mean, right. there's some stuff in it, obviously. The Hellfire Club, you know, throughout the line, you know, Cable and Apocalypse will come up in here. But it's more, it's also definitely more in the Marvel Universe. So do you, um, it's my book, so I guess I'll start the grading. Let me get back to the cover. So the cover, I mean, I really like this one. To be fair, I really like this issue, so I will be <laughs> probably grading a bit on a curve of you know nostalgia and enjoyment. But I like the cover a lot. I like that Kirby element to it. I like that all three of the figures have a nice, good position, and they also really have a both all good focal points with Cable, the main one, because he's the biggest character out of them all. But if you're looking on the bottom of the bottom, both Irene and the Hellfire Club goons still do have a enough to attract your attention to see what's going on. But it's clear. You can tell exactly what's happening. You're not confused. I just did, guessed it on an issue of back episode of Back to the Bins recently. We talked about an issue of Solo Avengers and the cover was very kind of confusing and muddy. It's like, wait, what's going on here? That is not happening here at all. And I like this a lot, and this was my first introduction to Ladron's art, so I'm going to give it uh, an A. And like I said before, both the story and art really... I mean, there's really nothing else I can say about it. I really enjoyed them both. I thought it told a good story, introduced a new character well, introduced them to this world of superheroes, basically, in a way that you probably would be introduced to a world of superheroes if that existed. It's terrifying, and it's scary and confusing. Like we said, his artwork, it's a really cool Jack Kirby influenced, but yeah, and very detailed art. Um, I'm just giving it an A all the way through. The, uh, the cover is a pretty perfect layout because you have the, the only thing I would hold against the cover is it kind of gives away the ending of the story. But also, since 90% of the story is not about cable. You kind of have to do that to have Cable on the cover. This issue of Cable 
is about Irene Merriweather and her hunt for the Hellfire Club. It's a part one of a story that is centered more around Cable, so obviously he's part of it. So there's not really any other choice but to include Cable on the cover the way he is. So um, choosing a scene that is pretty much straight out of the action of the story, the Hellfire Club is coming after Irene, and Cable is coming out of the fire to, to beat them and save her, that is pretty great. Also, it all happens in a way that doesn't really – it feels like it should give away the ending because it is him coming out to save her at the end. But, like, once you're in the story, you kind of forget that. And I don't really feel like the cover is a spoiler because one thing that gets my goat about covers is when they do the ending reveal on the cover. Yeah. Or whenever they do the cliffhanger or whatever it is, the story beat that wants you to come back next month – putting that on the cover and like cheating and using it twice really annoys me. That's like a cardinal cover sin for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this doesn't feel like that. Uh, so yeah, good layout, good purpose, a on the cover. This story could be the first chapter of a novel. It could be the opening pages of a short story. This does not have to be part of a Marvel universe story. Just the way it's written, obviously, Sebastian Shaw, Hellfire Club, Cable, those are all properties that we all know are from elements of a larger universe. But if you just took this comic out of existence and just like put it on its own thing. Like just change those names. Not even change the names. Like you don't have to know what a Sebastian Shaw is. You're reading this story and it gives you everything you need to know. You're reading a story about a a reporter who's investigating a secret society and gets attacked by people who are involved with that secret society and is rescued by a mysterious hero. That is none of no other knowledge of any other Marvel comic is required to be fully invested in this story exactly as written. And that takes some skill and some 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 that takes some doing. This was definitely intended, I I guess, I say definitely, this seems like an issue intended to grab new readers and bring them in and say, hey, you can can sign on here. Um, So A on the story and the art I've gushed about, you know, I'm I'm not not a Kirby worshiper per se. My favorite Jack Kirby is actually his Golden Age work. I, I don't really like his Bronze Age work and his Silver Age work. I, I love what it does for comics, but there's so many shortcuts that he takes in it that I'm not, you know, I like it. I don't love it, but I could definitely see the influences here. And I kind of like Ladron's use of a lot of the better aspects and better elements of Kirby's style in his own style here. Plus he brings his own a game and does a lot of stuff with you know, with backgrounds, with faces, with expressions, with details in the scenes and the story, um, little storytelling elements that aren't necessary, but he puts them in because it makes it more interesting. That's pretty great. So yeah, this is pretty much an A comic all around. I think it, I don't know. I just think it might be better than mine, but it's so different to mine that, I don't know. Well, it's very different. I mean, before we say what yours is, yours is an ending, ours is a beginning. I mean, this one's a beginning. Right, right. 
you know, they're both begin this, you know, they're both starting multi-issue story arcs, but you know, they're both parts of multi sorry, they're both parts of multi-issue story arcs, but this is the first one and that's the last one. Mm-hmm. I understand and I do sometimes agree with that old saying, you know, every comic is someone's first, but let's be honest. The last part of a story really should not be focused on introducing everything because it's the last part. If people have been reading all the other parts, don't jip them by doing half, spending half the issue introducing every character. But on the beginning of a story, you should kind of introduce things. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, even if for people who are regular readers, you kind of want to introduce, okay, this is where we're starting from. This is where everyone is. You know, this is, this is the status quo we're starting with before we change it. Shall we move on or anything else to say about this one? No, not, not, I mean, I can probably gush a bit more, but <laughs> <laughs> I can probably spend time just looking at each page going, Ooh, that's cool. Ooh, that's cool. All right. Well, my issue is one that, um, I had recently read to my son and it is Superman 82 of the, uh, 1993 variety, not the 1950s variety. Uh, Superman 82 is the last issue with the emblazoned reign of the Superman banner. This is the final chapter of Superman's return from having been killed by doomsday at the end of 1992. Uh, and it's basically a solid full year from the beginning of the doomsday story to now. Um, cause the doomsday story for those who don't know, it actually lasts a couple of months in the comics of, you know, quarter, uh, every week there was a chapter of the Superman story in each of his four books. Doomsday shows up, they build that story. And then there's the fight and all of that takes about eight issues, about two months. And then he dies. Um, there's several issues of funeral. There's about three months where there are no Superman comics. And <laughs> it was during that time that Todd McFarlane wrote his infamous spawn number 10, where he like, use the death of Superman as like an emblem of everything that was wrong with comics creator rights and everything. And then they brought back four different Superman characters. None of him was the real one until after a while, the real Superman is actually resurrected. He was legitimately dead and they used some science fiction. Who's he? What's this to bring him back? So this Superman 82 is the final chapter of the saga the uh, cyborg Superman, the one of the Superman who had been pretending to be the real one. Uh, everyone knew he was a cyborg, but they thought he was the Superman, the real Superman as a cyborg. Turns out to have been evil. Turns out to have been seeking revenge. He wanted to besmirch Superman's name in humanity's eyes and then also basically destroy the Earth. And they were going to steer it around in, the, in space with this giant engine that was strapped onto California riding Green Lantern's hometown of Coast City. They obliterated Coast City to build this engine into the planet. Uh, They being the cyborg and Mongol, a Jim Starlin-created character from the Bronze Age who was back in the present day. And, uh, yeah, so you got all these background elements going on. And basically it comes down to one last big fight. The young Superman character, Superboy, the Kryptonian um, artifact construct AI character known as the Eradicator, the uh, New York citizen who strapped on some armor and picked up a hammer and called himself Steel. 
these three Supermen are here. Supergirl is here. And a Green Lantern has shown up because they blew up his city. And that's all coming into play in the storyline. Now, all that said, this issue has two covers. They were both released in August 24th, 1993, with cover dates of October. And the, the, um, the one cover, which is sort of like the celebration cover, is all of these hero characters flying across the sky with the one big main Superman back in his original costume emblazoned behind them. And it says Superman back for good. The rain is over. Dan Jurgens and Brett Breeding on art. And it's a pretty fantastic cover. What do you think about this? Oh, I like this cover a lot. Um, I'm pretty sure this is the cover I got because, again, I was reading Superman at the time. I started reading right before they did the uh, triangle numbering when they did the story called Crisis of the Crimson Crypt- Kryptonite, mm-hmm. where Mixaplik makes fake red kryptonite and gives it to Lex Luthor. And that's when Superman Inc. proposes Lois, and I read it straight through to about a few months after this. So that was around issue 50. Yep. Yep, 49 was actually my first issue of this title, Superman. And then whatever other issue, yeah, 49 50, and then the other titles were whatever was part of that story. And I read right through to a few months after the reign of the Superman ended. And I was really into this whole death and return of Superman. I loved this story. And I was very happy. I, I remember, I'm pretty sure I bought this cover. The second cover had a bit of a foil treatment to it. Of its foil or just like um, embossed. I'm not exactly sure how to describe it. But it has, this is, this is more of like the specific to this particular issue chapter cover in the background, you have Superman's cyborg face, and all of the metal is like embossed, and the Superman logo is embossed. And behind the cyborg face is like this circuit board, and some of the uh, colors on that are also embossed. And in the foreground, you have Superman flying toward the camera, looking angry and determined to stop the bad guy. And his cape. His cape is doing a little bit of weirdness. Just be able to see all the other art. It's like pulled sort of taut um, into a narrow space behind him instead of billowing out like his cape usually would. But like I said, if, if it did that, you wouldn't be able to see everything that's going on on the cover. So other than a little bit of weirdness with the cape shape, this is a, a pretty solid cover as well. Did you look at this one too? Yeah, I'm looking at it actually right now. This is a cool looking cover. But this is the foil embossed one. But yeah, I definitely did not buy this because at the time I uh, wasn't worried about buying the special covers mm-hmm. because, well, at this time I was would have been um, October '93, or you said what? When did this actually come out? August '93. Okay, yeah. So this is a, this was summer right before I started college. I did not have that much money. Well, there is a definite cover price difference. You have the two dollar cover and the three fifty cover. So, um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, my story about these special covers is I learned my lesson a a few years before that with X-Force number one. Do you remember Mm -hmm. the fact that that came polybagged with, uh, five different cards? Right. I bought 10 copies, two of each one. Wow. And then I realized afterwards, wait a minute, everyone else has this too. Cause it was the whole, Ooh, this is going to be worth something. And then I realized, well, if we all, if everyone has it, how is it worth anything? Right. What's the point? 
And after that, I went, okay, I'm just going to buy whatever the one I actually want to buy. And if I'm broke, which I was back then a lot since I was 17, 18, I'm going to buy whatever one's cheaper or it gives me the most. So like when X-Men one came out with the four, the five different covers, I waited until that last one came out where it had all, all the stuff together. I'm like, let me just buy it once. I, that does look like a cool cover. I mean, I can see what you're saying about the cape being a little weird shape, but you need that to be able to show the image behind him of the cyborg Superman and the mm-hmm. cover copy. Yeah, it was a cool looking cover, but I probably would have went for the other one because it was a dollar to dollar cheaper <laughs> and I could buy another comic instead. Well, the credits on this are uh, that it's written and drawn by Dan Jurgens, uh, finished art by Brett Breeding, colored by Glenn Whitmore and lettered by John Costanza. You start out with kind of like a gathering of forces. The Eradicator character had been all but killed several issues earlier, so he's been recuperating. He finally is rejoining the fight at Engine City, so we we open the story a little bit from his point of view. There's a little bit of recap about, you know, kind of the basics of where we are in the story because the the 90s comics were really good about making sure everyone was on the right page. Uh, Green Lantern has just shown up. He is really upset that Mongol has destroyed his home. So he is going to fight Mongol. He's actually going to fight Mongol in a chapter of his own book, which runs perfectly parallel to this book. Um, it, it, they they end in the same place, although his book starts just a little bit earlier, showing him to get to this fight. Eradicator runs into Superboy. Uh, they head inside, steal John Henry Irons. His job was to shut down Engine City. And he has managed to do that, but he has taken quite the beating while doing so. And his armor is ripped and torn in several places. Supergirl and Superman are determined to also go in and find the cyborg and make him pay. Superman is a little bit low on power, having come back from the dead. He's not at full power. Um, so he, Supergirl's kind of been helping him do the super feats he needs. And he has been carrying some 90s hardware. Uh, Superman's been strapped throughout his attack on Engine City, guns blazing as he's been kind of um, gunning down aliens left and right on his way through Engine City. So um, the whole like Superman doesn't kill thing, well, you know, except for when he does. Then we get (laughs) Cyborg like looking at all the monitors, rejoicing about how he's going to get super awesome revenge. Lois Lane is watching a, a little bit about Coast City on the TV. She wants to n- not miss the official announcement of the full, real, actual Superman having returned. Um, her would-be boyfriend, uh, Jeb, who's been kind of, you know, sweet on her ever since Clark died, is a little bit upset that she's, you know, not giving him attention or something, and it's all wrapped up in Superman again, because he's only just recently realized that Everyone thought Lois Lane was all about Clark Kent, but he realized that she's in love with Superman. Of course, he doesn't realize what that means. Our heroes go and uh, they find and find Cyborg, or rather Cyborg finds them. The fart, the fart, <laughs> the fight starts in earnest. Blasts them and then he disappears because Cyborg Superman is like, he's a, a metal path. He can control anything metallic. So, um... The, the, the structure of the city, the electronics, all of that stuff, he can mentally control. So Superman just starts blazing guns into the structure of the city itself. He starts shooting everything down. So Cyborg changes tacks. 
he sends his mind into the metal suit of John Henry Irons and starts causing that to move and uh, choke steel. Um, there's even this weird, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street part where he's laying down, uh, writhing on the ground as Cyborg's head, like, comes up out of the metal of the belly of his suit. Yeah. It's it's a little bit weird. It, almost a little pornographic, actually. It's, it's kind of strange. Yeah, it is, that is a weird little image. So Superman finally finds Cyborg, and they start actually fist fighting. Superboy, who's still who's who's just beginning to realize that his powers aren't exactly a clone copy of Superman's powers. His power set's a little bit different. He realizes that if he tries hard, he can obliterate uh, metal structures just with a touch. Like he can touch stuff and just like poof it apart with his mind. So he goes over to John Henry Irons and grabs his suit and basically shatters it off of him. So uh, he he's no longer getting killed. At this point, Superman and the Eradicator are basically on their own trying to find the cyborg. They keep on fighting and then cyborg disappears. And they fight and cyborg runs off. So now they're trying to find cyborg. His face comes out of the wall. And like taunts them, and then but then skadooshes away. Like it, it, there's this weird panel of it, like like running down the ceiling. It's yeah. it's weird. Um, it's like so, it's on a track or something. Yeah, yeah. So they keep fighting. They're basically fighting the city. Superman and the Eradicator are basically shooting and punching the different elements of the city that are attacking them. It's all very weird. Um, Superman. Uh, and the Eradicator actually have an argument because in previous stories, the Eradicator has been a threat to the people of Earth because his efforts and desires to preserve the Kryptonian way of life have been, you know, at the expense of life on human life on Earth. So Superman's not exactly thrilled that the Eradicator's here, and they argue about that. But the Eradicator's like, "No, you're you're the last Kryptonian. I'm here for you." So you know. Superman's like, all right, fine, for now. They finally find the core of Engine City. Cyborg is standing in front of a huge chunk of kryptonite, which has been wired into the core of Engine City. Now, in 1993, kryptonite is not everywhere. Ever since the revamp of the Superman story in the 80s, there has been basically one chunk of kryptonite on the planet Earth. It's, you know, smaller than a hand. That this was the one is, Luther had, right? The ring? Right. It got, you know, put into his ring, and that's what gave him cancer, which eventually killed Lex Luthor until he, you know, put his brain into a clone. What? Um, what? Dun, dun, they, dun. they saved Luthor's brain? Uh, Lex Luthor with the Australian accent. <laughs> so this is a huge chunk of kryptonite that's larger than a person that the cyborg found in space. And he's basically using the radiation from this chunk of kryptonite to fuel his engine city. Um, however, he's now going to use it to directly kill Superman. He punches through the containment wall of the um, the kryptonite case. And Superman realizes that the other heroes are going to get hurt by this radiation so he turns the valve and a door slams down, blocking Superboy, Steel, and Supergirl from the fight. So it's just Superman and the Cyborg and the Eradicator. And Superman says, you know what? It's just the three of us, and we're playing for keeps. He pulls a gun on Cyborg, 
and would blast if Cyborg's little head didn't come out and say, no, yeah, 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 and uh, blow up the gun right in his hand. So Eradicator starts punching Cyborg. Superman grabs a big old rifle and starts blasting at Cyborg. They are trying to take this guy down. Cyborg, like, grabs one of the pipes that's in, uh, attached to the, 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 the kryptonite casing, grabs the other end of it, and basically uses it as like a reverse vacuum cleaner. He 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 turns it on. It just like shoots Kryptonian uh, Kryptonite radiation dust at his target, but it, which is going to be Superman, except that the Eradicator jumps in the way. So the Eradicator takes the full brunt of the Kryptonite radiation dust blast. The energies go through the Eradicator. And we see this rainbow effect coming out of the back of the Eradicator, and that's what hits Superman. And at first, it's really, really painful, and it looks like Superman has been finished. The huge chunk of Kryptonite has been reduced to a tiny, tiny chunk because of this uh, draining off all of the radiation dust from the from the chunk. And now, the cyborg is like looking at the cloud, going, "Where's Superman's dead body?" Uh, Green Lantern arrives. He has finished off Mongol somewhere, uh, or at least, you know, won the fight. And he's all pretty, pretty battered. He uses his ring to make a battering ram to go through the wall in the doorway so that all the other heroes can get inside and find Superman. He puts them inside a green energy bubble to save them from the irradiation. Um, Cyborg sees the Eradicator's dead body. Hey, everyone. Al here. We had a little bit of a glitch in the recording at this moment. So just so you know, the he that John's about to talk about is Superman. All right, just want to clarify. Back to John. Here and now, I'm taking it all back. He finds a cape, which I guess was the one. It's not the one Eradicator was wearing because Eradicator's not wearing a cape. Oh, it was Cyborg's cape. That was my assumption. Yeah, that was Cyborg's cape. So Cyborg, so Superman actually grabs Cyborg's cape and ties it on, um, punches Cyborg in the face, and actually punches through Cyborg's body. And here's where it gets interesting, because he says that he said earlier we're playing for keeps. He says this is your doomsday. He says no prison can contain you. He says um, Cyborg says you're never going to beat me, Superman. You never will. He says wrong. If I vibrate my arm at an incredible rate and with his arm through Cyborg, he begins uh, shattering Cyborg's body. Cyborg just has enough time to say, I might survive. And Superman says, well, yeah, if you do, I'll be watching. And basically he obliterates Cyborg Superman, uh, you know, for all intents purposes, killing him right then and there. Um, all the other heroes run up. Supergirl uses her uh, um, telekinetic powers to realign the tatters of his clothing into a full-on Superman costume. Everyone's like, yeah, this is the guy. This is the boy. And um, they all fly away. And Superman is wearing his super suit. Superboy, who spent the entire uh, series claiming that he's the real one and only Superman. It's like, no, 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 no. This guy's Superman. And Superman flies away thinking about how he's experienced crazy stuff. He's enjoying being alive. He's back at full power. He's rejuvenated. He has long, flowy hair. And he has no idea what's coming next. 
but he'll be able to handle anything better than ever. And that's the end of the story. It was an extended story. It's half again as long as like a 30 pager instead of a 20 pager. But yeah, that's the end of the story. Well, yeah, because it's the end of not just this story. I mean, this is the end of this whole epic arc. Right. It's not just the end of the reign of the Superman. This is the end of the whole trilogy of stories. Death of Superman, Funeral for a Friend, and Reign of the Superman. So it has to do a lot. And it doesn't do everything. There are a few loose ends to wrap up in the coming chapters. Things like, where was Clark Kent all this time? Kind of reestablishing and getting our feet back on the ground to start Superman stories again. There's still a few more things to do. But this is basically the last chapter of the primary plot. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of details to go on overall, but at the, you know, we got to the end where the villains are defeated and the real Superman is back. He is back bigger and better than ever before with longer hair. Yes. Longer hair, not a mullet. Okay. Listener land. If you grow out your hair and you brush it back, it's going to look shorter in the front because you have your little wispies but it's all brushed back and flowing along the sides and back the top of your head and then down the back of your hair head. And that is not a mullet. No. And I will agree with that because guess what? Around this time or shortly after this, a couple months later when I was in college, my hair, I did have my hair roughly that long and it would in pictures, you know what it looks like? It looks, it looks like, like a mullet. mullet. <laughs> yep. But it was not, but it was not, I did not have business in the front party in the back. I had long hair. A mullet is a short haircut with long hair in the back. Mm-hmm. So I am there. I am with. I am on the. Ba- I am on the Bailey side of this. It is not a mullet. <laughs> so um, yeah, I really love the Reign of the Superman story. This last reread has been with my son. My previous read of the story all the way through was with my daughter when she was about the same age seven years ago, and. I really enjoy the story. It is not just a year-long epic on its own, but it's like a culmination of plot lines. Not so much a culmination of plot lines, but like it brings together several plot elements from different aspects of Superman's world that have been spun and re-spun over the last seven years. And they're all coming together for this because Hank Henshaw, the cyborg Superman, is a character who goes back to an offbeat Fantastic Four storyline where they're basically like, here are these four astronauts. They go through an event very much like the Fantastic Four, only instead of getting superpowers and being awesome, everything goes really, really horrible. One person catches on fire and dies. One person turns into stone and dies under his own mass. Um, the wife becomes invisible, but like dies. <laughs> yeah, everyone dies but him. Yeah, and he his his Reed Richards parallel is that um, his mind becomes disincorporated from his body, and he can control metal. So he makes these like you know long tendrily like effects, very Reed Richards esque. And that's how he's able to make bodies for himself. The cyborg Superman thing was just like a chosen look for this particular task that ended up sticking for all the centuries, all all the decades since. Because it is a cool look. It is a very cool look. And also because, uh, sorry, 
But I was going to say, yeah, also because at the end of that story, initially, he goes into the birthing matrix that had sent Superman, you know, the little rocket that had sent Superman to Earth and takes that to go into space. That's how he right. leaves at the end of the story. And that's how he's able to come back as Superman because he has Superman's DNA and this birthing matrix and Kryptonian metal. So he's able to come back with Superman's DNA and Kryptonian metal and everything. So that's how, from what I remember, that's how he was able to convince everybody on the real Superman. So you have a couple different stories about that character and that's that's brought back here. The Eradicator is this is this like little little plot device that like ever since the panic from the sky and, and not panic from the sky before that, the exile storyline, which is around Superman like 20, 25, 30. So, you know, a solid four years earlier before this, you had this this concept of the eradicator being introduced, a little Kryptonian device, almost like a little gun. Because that's why it's called the Eradicator. Yeah, they actually they, do a pretty good job of explaining it, actually, in that page with uh, Superman and the Eradicator blasting the cyborg. Yeah, and they've done more thorough um, expositions of where all this came from in earlier chapters. But it's just like they – it's not the Chris Claremont concept of I have these concepts I'm going to spin out and bring into my stories slowly over time. It's more like a here's a story – and then later on, oh, wait, you know what we could do with that thing we did a year ago? We could take it in this direction. And so it's not so much pre-planned plotting as it is like organic ideas of taking the story in new directions. Yeah, I agree with that. Although I would say well, by the time they got to the death suit story and the rain and everything, they probably had, you know, I'm assuming they planned everything out that's going to be in here. Yeah. So all the elements from before were all the different disparate elements that they all, been when they got the conference together to figure out this whole death and return story, they probably were going through all the stuff they went oh we could bring this back and right. oh we could do something with this and oh we could do something we can tie this into it and finish that up and superboy comes out of cadmus which was also an idea that had been spinning around and it, it, that's that in turn is a revived concept from the project from jack kirby's run on superman in yeah. the 70s the only um element of this storyline that really is new to this storyline is john henry irons yes um, he is a new character, but almost every other major element of the death and re oh, and Doomsday. Yeah, but almost every other major element of the death and return storyline is some element that was previous in Superman's continuity of the last seven years brought in in a new way in a new direction. It makes it makes a satisfying read to go like seventy five months of Superman all in a go. No, yeah, definitely. That's what I was gonna say. Is it's definitely a reward for long-term readers. It's like, if you've been reading this for a couple of years now, all these things, we're going to explain them. They explain them, but like, if you've been reading it and you read all those things with the Eradicator before, or Cadmus, or all that other stuff, well, this is your reward. It's all going to tie in. Um, the art in this, I mean, it's Dan Jurgens and Brett Breeding. There's not much better you can get for Superman. Especially for the time. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. No. I mean, there was a reason this was the Superman book. This was the flagship book. I mean, granted, it was almost like a weekly book. Because you had the four, four titles. Yeah, and except for those four months out of the year where those five weeks, there was a Superman book every week. And I did love the fact that it was a weekly book, more or less, because it felt more like a they were creating a world. Right. You know, because they could they could have more time for things because they weren't just, well, each, each, uh, each creative team was doing their own you know, series, they were all tying it all in together. But there was a reason why this was the team on the flagship book, I think. 
And there are other characters out there who've done this structure for short spans or for special occasions. Um, Spider-Man has dabbled in the weekly interlocking storytelling. Batman has dabbled in the weekly interlocking storytelling. There's the, uh, you know, occasional event books where you have the main event, but then like the, the storyline basically interweaves between the event book and like the primary other books, like infinity going through Avengers or, War of the um, Gods. War of the Gods, Infinity Gauntlet going through, not Infinity Gauntlet, um, Infinity Crusade going through the two Warlock books and back. So oh, that's right, yeah. So, but but Superman did it month in, month out for years, where all the creators were working together and telling an interlocking story, bringing in their own ideas into their own issues, but also continuing each other's subplots in four separate titles. Four separate creative teams working together as one whole. To bring this whole, like I said, this whole world of Superman. I mean, if you just go through all these, you're just immersed in Superman's world. And, you know, become it really fleshes it out, I thought. And really made Metropolis, even before the aforementioned James Robinson made Opal City its own place in Starman. Metropolis felt like a existing place. It wasn't just a backdrop. There weren't just random things. Metropolis felt like a real, more or less, you know, as real as comic could be, real city in the DC universe. The only drawback to this is that this is such a peak that this this issue being the climax of this storyline and this storyline being a climax of a continuity, it is such a peak that going forward definitely feels like something less like oh. i'm not saying the books are bad by any stretch but this is a high <laughs> no this is definitely a high it's almost like where do we go from here now right I mean, and you, and they get into bizarro and they get into the supergirl lex luthor stuff and and they build towards you know the return of the original luthor and and the fall of metropolis and uh, there's a lot of good stuff to come but this was this was a peak and by definition, if you're not on the peak, you are lower. <laughs> no, agreed. And while I do love the creative teams on these books, it almost would have been a good thing for them if maybe they had left at this point. And, and, let, and, and let someone brand new take over and try and do something different. And Jerry Ordway actually did. He's the one person who left. He adventures of Superman 500, which was the end of the funeral for a friend. And took us into the big break of three months before they start bringing uh, the characters back. He did that issue and then left. Oh, that's true. That's right. And because I think it was like Carl Kessel and Tom Grummet was doing the work on mm-hmm. that afterwards. So mm-hmm. at least, they, I mean, granted, they were part of the rain story, but at least, yeah, they were a brand new team. But everyone else was the teams from what I remember are the, te- you know, they stayed on. Yeah. And speaking of the art, by the way, one thing I want to point out. Two things I'm think I'm noticing as I was reading it again this time, and I don't know if I remember noticed it the first time I read it. I'm very entertained about how much they're making this engine look like a giant engine, especially like the the giant nuts and bolts <laughs> all over. Yeah, I mean it's like how is all of that supposed to work? Because really, from the outside, what this looks like is the butt end of a rocket. This is just the two big silos all the fire is going to come out of. To push the planet through space. 
but it's kind of amusing watching them run around. It's like, you know, it's like the atom running through a car engine or something. Yeah, I don't know how all of those moving parts on the inside are supposed to are supposed to make it happen, but hey, it is engine city, so got to have engine in it, right? There's 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 stuff going around. The stuff with the cyborg head, I felt very Nightmare on Elm Street, and I was laughing with uh with with Lily because the one shot of John Henry Irons writhing on the ground looks kind of sexual. So we're like, is it Freddy or is he in a gay porn? <laughs> it's just like. It's hard to tell. <laughs> it's also kind of funny, that panel, because I'm looking, I'm like, okay, he's controlling metal. I understand how he's making the hands do stuff, but it's been established in pages before, and also in this panel, that his right arm is still fully covered by the metal. So, yes, he's making the metal move to the, you know, move to the neck, and then the hand crush it, you know, crush his neck. But the other hand, it's basically just a glove. His whole arm is not covered by metal anymore. So, yeah, he can make his fingers do stuff. Right. But how's he making the arm go? How's he bending the arm and everything? He should just like the the hand should just be like on its own, kind of like I want to get to kind of like uh, Ash's hand from Evil Dead Two. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm also thinking of the um, the arm from the first episode of Doctor of the New Doctor Who. Give a man a plastic hand, like choking themselves with it. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing I noticed in the art is, as I'm going through this, I'm going, wow, there's a lot of nipple shots here. Well, Superman, I mean, he starts the story with a hole in his shirt. He ends the story with, like, barely not naked. Yeah, yeah, like, that's how Co- Superman would look if he was Conan at the end. Yes. But between him and John Henry Irons, it, it's like, wow, I was almost felt like counting the nipples. <laughs> you know. I mean, it's not the most important thing of this story, and it doesn't take away, but it is kind of a little amusing side. It's definitely amusing. I wonder how cold it was in there. Uh, they're blasting away. It's pretty warm. Well, yeah, I mean, Superman looks like he's burnt. Right. Like he's like a first degree burnt, second degree burn on his chest. That's from a, a, a bad moment earlier in the story, I'm sure. Yes. One of the things that I found uh, super interesting about this book that I, I definitely draw drew attention to the recap was that Superman full on kills Cyborg Superman in this. Like, he acknowledges the possibility that maybe Cyborg's ex, you know, consciousness still exists out there. But he goes into that fight. He goes into the final maneuver with full intentions of destroying this threat, which is something that Superman has done many times throughout history, completely eradicating the threat, no pun intended, of the storyline to never return again. Now, the fact is that the cyborg does come back again, and, and this story you know, drops a couple lines of dialogue to allow for that to happen, but as far as Superman's concerned, his intention was to destroy this guy, and I hadn't realized that on previous readings, and especially with all the debates that have happened in the Superman world in the last um, six years, it's, it's interesting that right here, he's like, we're playing for keeps. This is your doomsday. Yeah. I mean, I didn't realize that when I read it initially, but I mean, yeah, you're right. He even says that you're dangerous cyborg. I doubt any prison can effectively protect society from you. Mm-hmm. And whenever GL scans and says, I can't find any trace of his, of his energy. Superman's like, whew, that means it's over. He's wrong, but he's happy with it. He's content with that. Um, so yeah, it's, 
It's a solid story. Should we should we should we grade it? Sure. So I'm gonna give the celebration cover an A and the foil embossed cover an A minus. Um, they're both solid covers. And really, if you don't pay attention to the cape on the other one, it's you know not really that notable, but it does draw back. And I'm not a huge fan of foil embossed covers, and I don't really like the foil embossing on this one. I don't know, maybe if there were less of it, maybe it would it would it would go better for me, but I'm gonna say a minus on it. Okay. And the um the story, I mean, gosh. Maybe if I were to try to take this issue on its own, it might get less. But it's a pretty satisfying conclusion to a pretty to a pretty freaking fantastic run of the character, a year-long arc for the character. Um, so I don't think that even as a standalone issue, it would it would lose its A. This is a satisfying read on a number of levels. Uh, Superman is back. He's front and center. I kind of want the other characters to be more involved in the wrap-up, but we've been seeing them. We've been seeing nothing but them for the last several months, and they are going to get their epilogues later, so it's okay. And some uh, yeah, of them their own series, even. Right. So this is definitely an A story for me. And Dan Jurgens is one of those artists that is like quintessential Superman. I mean, you have when I see a, a Dan Jurgens Superman or a Tony Daniel Superman or a Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Superman, um, Kurt Swan Superman, Joe Schuster Superman, Wayne Boring before he became boring. Superman, like his early forties stuff, I really like. The, 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 these are some characters, some some artists that I think of as like quintessential to their era, and yeah, this is this is that. So definitely A for the art. A's across the board. A A A. You get an A, and you get an A, and Al, what do you get? Okay, let's start cover. Uh, so yeah, I have to agree. The celebration cover definitely gets the A for me. The other one I'm giving actually a B plus. It's a pretty good cover, ignoring the foil part. It's a decent cover on its own, but it doesn't com- does not convey to me the importance of this issue. Fair. And the and the, fir- and the celebration cover definitely conveys the importance of this issue. It has all the main characters from this reign, reign of the Superman story, and showing no, the real Superman is here now, and he is back, and this is the end of it. And that does it definitely conveys the feeling of the end of this whole thing. The other one could just be it could be a cover of any any point in the story or even be used at any point when Cyborg Superman returns. You know, it's it's you know, I mean, it's a good it's a good drawing, but it's a generic cover. in the fact that if they didn't use that then and they just said, nah, let's hold this in the drawer for a while. And then Cyborg Superman comes back. They're like, oh, let's use that cover now. You know, but this celebration cover is definitely for this story. You know, right. it wouldn't work on any other issue, really. So I'm giving that one an A, but the other one a b plus good good the story well i and like something like we said before i said before this is the end of a big story it shouldn't be spending half the issue explaining everything because it's the end of this big event we need to have the ending of the event you know we don't want to cheapen it by spending too much time going over things but i think they do a pretty decent job i mean that two page i think it's a two-page splash because i'm reading it digitally on dc online it's really small there so i think it's a two-page splash they kind of do give you a quick update of what happened. Okay, 
Cyborg Superman's teaming with Mongol, they destroyed Coke City and they made this giant engine. There you go. And again, when they have Superman when Superman and the Eradicator are fighting the cyborg, they have that nice, which I really like the art on that page, that nice full page thing where it's almost like you have a, the serpent is like the uh, image of the Eradicator in the birthing matrix, and they kind of give you a quick explanation of what each one is and where those two guys got their powers from, the Eradicator from the Eradicator, the cyborg from the birthing matrix. You know, there, you still get some information coming if you're just reading this issue. Mm-hmm. But it's a, I think it's a pretty well done story for the most part, with the exception of Green Lantern. And let's be fair, it even says go see Green Lantern's issue. The other characters do get enough. We, you know, we get some stuff with Steel, so we see what's happening to him. We get, you know, the Eradicators in a lot of it. We even get, you know, we get some with Superboy. Not a lot. He gets, like, the least out of all of them in Supergirl, too. So at least we kind of get a bit of all these different characters that are here. They're not just showing up and disappearing. Right. You know, Lois is the one that gets the shortest shrift. I mean, she, we could have cut her part out and really wouldn't matter. Literally three panels. Yeah. You know, they could have cut her out. But beyond that, I have to give the story an A because it is a great ending for this whole saga. And it's very exciting. And I think it would work decent enough on its own, but it's hard for me to tell because I've never read it on its own. I read it always as part of the run. Mm-hmm. Even reading it now on its own, I still know that whole story. So maybe if somebody read it on its own, they might have a different thought. Maybe. But I can't say because I don't have that perspective. And the art, I do have to agree with you. Jurgens is Superman from like 1991 to like 99. That is the art of Superman. And when you see that, like you said, that is definitely become an iconic look for Superman. Or one of the iconic looks, as you said. And he does draw, I have to admit, an awesome cyborg Superman. I mean, all the images of him, even like from the side and everything, it looks, it's a really great look. So, uh, I feel like I'm, I feel cheap, like I'm giving everything an A, but I mean, these are two issues that I both really like, so. <laughs> yeah, well, whenever we were doing this issue, I mean, this is our one time to come on this show, so we brought stuff that we really enjoy. Um, if we were doing this every week or every month or every whatever, we'd bring comics that are, you know, just whatever. Um, but yeah. And I have done that before, actually. I've been on the show once or twice, and I have brought a comic. I'm like, I have no idea what's going on here. This is not that good. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I but like yeah. Viking stuff, and I want to talk about something that I knew I was going to enjoy. And I enjoyed your comic, too. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to bring that one, because I'm like, oh, I like this one. And it's not really one that gets talked about a lot. So I at least want to have a chance to talk right. about it somewhere. So, yeah, no, I have to give the art an A here, too. So both, I'm giving both issues A's. Deal with it. They'll survive. Yes. All right. We have back to the binsed. We have been binsed. Oh, and real quick, I do like the look of the Eradicator when he's dead, quote unquote, dead. That is just kind of creepy. It kind of feels like the um, the protoplasm Supergirl body whenever she gets punched by Doomsday and like purple blobs into the wall. Oh, yeah, you're right. I, I That was one of those things that as a kid reading the death of Superman trade paperback. There were two things that I went, but what? One of them was Lex Luthor is redheaded with a full flowing beard. <laughs> and the other was Supergirl turns into a purple blob. Both of those were like, I don't get this. And then whenever I finally, as an adult, started at Man of Steel number one and read through the entire Superman saga and got to that exact same part again, I was like, Oh, 
And of course, even before that, I, I, I understood because, you know, that that's how the story was spun. But it was definitely kind of like, okay, I get that now. Yeah, but I didn't, I didn't catch, I didn't think about that. But you're right. Yeah, it does look like that. That is cool. All right. Well, yeah, we have been binged. We want to uh, say thank you to Paul Spataro, Bill Robinson, and Scott Gardner for letting us come in and um, keep the seats warm for you. Sorry, I had a fart a couple times. I'm sure it'll dissipate by the time you're back here in the studio. Um, they got an air freshener, I'm sure, somewhere around here. I'll find it. Yeah, yeah. We'll give a quick spray as we leave. Lock the door behind us. I will give a quick spray right before I leave. Uh, right there. Okay, good. All right, I'm going to go to the other side of the room. <laughs> but do before we, do, we head out... Do we pimp ourselves? Oh, of course we should. You start. All right, well, want to hear from more from me? And actually, you can also hear more of John there, too. My show, Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast, which is about, well, Adam Warlock and Thanos. It's right there in the title. It's not really hidden. We cover all Adam Warlock and Thanos stuff, a lot of it on the Bronze Age Jim Starlin stuff, but we also do dip in with some of the more recent Jim Starlin hardcovers, and even a little bit of looks at some of the more recent uh, Infinity storylines, like Infinity Countdown and Infinity, uh, Infinity Wars. And you can find that, well, just type in Adam Warlock or Thanos and whatever your podcatcher is, we're pretty much the only thing that'll pop up. And also our main page is Resurrections Adam is on Tumblr, resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com. Um, I can be found on Twitter at John Reads Comics, and my pinned tweet has all my stuff. There is a Marvel show, which is probably my number one podcast I do with Michael Kaiser, Make Hours Marvel, going through every superhero story from the 1960s in order of publication. Been doing that for about a year and a half now. Uh, that is available also uh, my solo effort, All the Pouches, an image comics podcast on Twitter at All the Pouches. And that is my exploration of the early years of image comics. I started with the infamous Youngblood number one and have been going through every comic book published by Image Comics in that show with several episodes coming out every month. I am slowly cooking um, about halfway to the point of wanting to start releasing uh, episodes of a Transformers UK podcast that is on Twitter now at TFUK podcast, um, where I'll be going through the comics that were published by Marvel UK and the cartoons that came out at the same time. And in a bit of parenting joy, my son has come along to watch the cartoons with me and have conversations on this show with me about them. So that is delightful. He's 10 and he has some pretty fun insights into the transformers. Um, I also do a tweet blog about the Scarlet witch on Twitter at let's talk Wanda. And, um, and yeah, there's one other thing, but that has been discontinued. So those are my efforts right now. Al it's, been nice doing this podcast with you oh again with the puns lily's not around to smack you in the back of the head for that <laughs> is she i just really part of me really really wants to like get a collection of all your puns and put it together and just send it to her <laughs> <laughs> well um i guess we say thanks for listening everybody and yes, come back you. next week for more back to the bins Yes, when we'll be... I have no idea who's going to be on. But somebody will be. Somebody will be here. Hopefully. Whether you like it or not. Bye. Bye, everybody.
Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.